This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In 1981, director Steven Spielberg and star Harrison Ford gave the world an adventurous romp through exotic lands all around the globe. In 2022, we stay camped out in Scotland for a trip to Isla. The film is Raiders of the Lost Ark. The whiskey is Laphroaig 10 cask strength. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1981 classic Raiders of the Lost Ark. We are smack dab in the middle of a mini series of Steven Spielberg movies. And we're just trying to, you know, we're making him play the hits. This is the greatest hits album. We're doing Jaws, <laughs> Close Encounters, Raiders. And then next week we're going to finish out with Jurassic Park. Man, I got to say, Brad, it's it's pretty easy to do four episodes in a row when they're all Spielberg movies. I'm with you, man. I I think that last week was a little bit of an anomaly for his career. It definitely feels a lot different in certain ways than most of his movies. But man, oh, man, did we come back with a crowd pleaser in in, uh, Indiana Jones? Yeah, it really does feel like a strong whiplash effect. And these are I don't want to call them Uh the two. Uh, A whip. Hey, I see what you did there. Yeah, I don't want to call these the two polls of you know like extremes uh, for Spielberg but last week was definitely more of an introspective uh, contemplative almost kind of spiritual film in Close Encounters even though it had these huge sci-fi and visual effects elements to it and this week I mean if you can make a, a criticism of the Indiana Jones films it's just that they are they're sheer popcorn entertainment like there's nothing beneath the surface of any of these movies they're just fun and they are a really uh, good way to kill two hours you know what i mean yeah i will i'll just say it here from the start bob i think that you can see lucas's influence on this movie just so heavily like in a in a way this feels like the least spielbergy movie out of all the Spielberg movies I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partially because of Lucas. I think it's also because it's Harrison Ford in his heyday. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he just commands attention in a way that like a Tom Cruise would. Uh, But yeah, I I think that this is vastly different than a lot of other Spielberg movies, even like later ones that he's worked on. So I, this is a, this is a fascinating little, little mix up for Spielberg, I think. I agree. And I think it's because they were leaning so heavily into paying homage to the 1930s and 40s serials that they would go see in the movie theater, that they would play these little, you know, one or two real short films that would play before whatever film you went to see. And they would always be serialized. So they'd end on a cliffhanger and then you'd come back and see the next one. And it's something that has been commented on with Raiders of the Lost Ark, that the structure of the movie is 
you know, every 20 minutes or so, you get a setup, you get some sort of suspenseful chase sequence, uh, there's a fight or something, and then there's a payoff, and then the whole cycle starts again. And so in a lot of ways, it, it reflects the structure of those things that Spielberg and Lucas grew up with. But to your point, Brad, I think it also has some of those kind of old-timey swashbuckler-type entertainments that Star Wars was really based on. And you don't want to be like the movie snob and say like, oh, there's nothing beneath the surface here. But again, it's just so weird to come off of Close Encounters where Spielberg was really grappling with things that I think were even too deep for him to kind of get his arms around. And you get to this movie and it's only two films later in his catalog. And he's like, yeah, screw it. Like, let's just drop a guy on a bunch of snakes and see what happens. <laughs> what uh, what was the movie in between, Bob? He made a movie called 1941 which was his attempt at making like a big, gigantic comedy. It was set in World War II. It starred John Belushi. Uh, it was on the scale of a movie kind of like it's a mad, 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 mad world where, okay. where I mean, there was there's stuff blowing up and there's a scene where a Ferris wheel gets detached and rolls down a boardwalk. <laughs> and it was a lot. It was a, like a boulder rolling after uh, Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, it was a colossal failure. It, it's it's unfunny. It's really long and bloated. It lost a ton of money. And Spielberg was really really in a place where the, he was kind of teetering on the brink of being unhirable because he kept going over budget and over schedule. He was getting a reputation for, you know, being kind of full of himself. And Lucas kind of reined him back in with this idea of, hey, this will be an easy movie to make. And Spielberg committed himself to being on time and under budget. And the result is, you know, one of the best adventure movies of all time. And I, I honestly think that's a great way to put it, Bob. This is just like through and through like the platonic ideal of an adventure movie. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of any other adventure movies we've done on the podcast uh, th that is on this level. And I, and I really just can't think of any. No. And it, again, it's not just that it mimics the structure of these old timey Hollywood adventure films, but there are certain, you know, the scene where where Indiana Jones is fighting the the giant Nazi outside the plane. And there's just like a cascading river of gasoline pouring towards an open <laughs> flame. And there's a cutaway to a, like a big sign in German, you know, and I don't remember what it says, but it says something like, oh, stop, flammable. And the way that the gasoline is pouring in, it's the kind of thing you would see in an early 1940s movie. And there's just so much of this kind of globe trotting, dangerous but fun attitude in this movie it reminded me a ton of the first half of treasure the sierra madre in that way yeah i i was glad you brought up treasure because i feel like there there's weird similarities between the two movies like treasure is a lot more serious of a film but it has that feeling of adventure of traveling out into the wilderness uh that you kind of get here in indie i just love the way that spielberg is able to kind of take these older influences and basically give Harrison Ford free reign to be like, hey, I'm going to set up these cool scenes for you. Like, you just go ham and be the coolest person ever. Well, Brad, before we get any further on talking about Harrison Ford, I think it's time that we throw over to Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. This was, I think, pretty obviously not your first time seeing Raiders. Oh, no, of course not. All right. You have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of the movie. Can you do it? 
Indiana Jones is set up at the start of the film as a adventuresome archaeologist. He almost takes a golden idol out of a South American temple, but it's stolen by an evil Frenchman named Baloch. Uh, he goes back to America and he's recruited by the military to go find the lost Ark of the Covenant that the Hebrews had way back in the day. So he is sent off to Nepal to find the daughter of an expert on the Ark. Uh, she helps him find his way to Cairo, where the Nazis are digging for the Ark of the Covenant. They have the wrong spot, but he has the actual medallion that will help them find the right spot. They get the Ark out, but every step of the way, the Baloch, the Frenchman, and the Nazis are dogging him. They take the Ark from him. They capture him and Marion, his love interest. They take them to an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, I believe, open the Ark. Everybody dies except for Marion and Indy because they keep their eyes shut. <laughs> the end. The end. Who knew that the power of God was similar to the powers of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, where if you just don't look at it, it can't affect you at all. That's right. That's it just that's just in the don't. Bible somewhere. <laughs> it's definitely in the Bible first, somewhere. First Reptilians, chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. All right. Let's get into talking about Indiana Jones. And we left off here with Harrison Ford. And I kind of have a hot take about Harrison Ford. Well. I have a very non-hot take and then a hot take. My my non-hot take is uh, Harrison Ford is just such an attractive man. Like Dude. all through this movie, I'm like, I, I, I'm really glad that he has never tried to make a pass at my wife because I'd be like, I, I lose <laughs> in that scenario. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. Old Harrison Ford with one little hoop earring. Yeah, not, not, not as much. He's lost, lost a little bit. <laughs> But 1981 Harrison Ford. Woo! Yeah. I mean, just objectively, what can you say except for woo? Yeah. He's uh, he's kind of got a little bit of a bearded Sylvester Stallone feel. Like, mm. Just, man, he's just got it going on. All right. Here's my hot take about Harrison Ford. I've never really been able to pin down a word to describe his acting style, especially in movies like this, like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, because it's not aloof. And it's not condescending. It's it's not even cocky, but there is a kind of sense of like there's a swagger and there's a detachment where he's like he's too cool for school in a lot of ways. But then his line delivery is kind of very wooden all throughout this movie and it works. But it's also like I don't know why it works. Does that make sense? It honestly reminds me a little bit of Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense. Huh. Like he's just a he's a little bit disinterested. He comes across a little bit cold because he's dead. <laughs> Do you get it? <laughs> uh, but honestly, the performance kind of reminds me of that because I'm with you, Harrison, in this movie. And honestly, in, in a lot of movies, he does. He, I, I'm with you. He just comes across as smarmy. I think that's the best. Yeah, I don't even know if that's the word because like. He he has a little bit of the Clint Eastwood, uh, I don't want to say stoicism, but, you know, detachment where he'll walk into town, but he's not going to express any emotion that goes along with his swagger. And in some ways, I noticed early on in this movie that it almost seemed like Spielberg was directing him to do his best John Wayne impression 
because he was very clearly doing a voice in the early part of these, this movie that kind of disappeared towards the end of the movie. But I noticed it especially after the chase through the streets uh, where Marion is kidnapped and then he's real mopey afterwards because he thinks she's dead. And he goes into that cafe where he sees Belloc. And the whole conversation with him, he's he's walking around and his voice is mimicking John Wayne in a very stagecoach kind of way. And I, I just really wonder, knowing how Spielberg directs his actors sometimes and how he specifically says, do it like this guy did in this movie. If there there wasn't a little bit of, hey, I want you to play this part a little bit like John Wayne. I'm not going to lie, Bob. I've never once thought that his voice was weird in this movie. Yeah, I, I wish I could like clip out the one line specifically that he said it. And I was like, that doesn't even sound like Harrison Ford. It sounds like <laughs> him doing John Wayne. Yeah. Actually, I, I know exactly I, what line it is, but I don't want to put it in here. It's the line where he's like, uh, he's like, well, these Arabs don't even know what they're doing. And <laughs> he says it that, just like that. And I'm like, that, what? That would be the John the Wayne one line yeah. that sounds like John Wayne. <laughs> the racist line. Oh my gosh! Maybe that's why it reminded me. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. I knew that was familiar." <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, that's interesting to me, Bob. I, I'm curious though, like, if you had to give an overall grade to his performance, like, where, like, where do you stand on him as Indiana Jones specifically in this, you know, first installment? I think maybe a better way to do it would be let's power rank the actors in this movie. Because it's hard for me to give like a numeric score to Indiana Jones. It is such an iconic character and you can't picture anybody else being Indiana Jones. So regardless of whether it's a good performance or not, it's clearly good enough to stick in our psyches for 40 years. Easily. No, I was going to say, if you want power rankings, number one, Alfred Molina as Satipo. (laughs) Obviously. He comes off the bench and just drains threes (laughs) and then immediately dies. Yeah. That's about it. (laughs) I think, to be frank, uh, Harrison Ford would be probably my third favorite performance in this movie. And I was really shocked at how good John Rhys Davies is in this movie. He is so charismatic and like kind of adorable, too. You know what I mean? He's, He's just cuddly enough, but he's also real strong and he helps Indy in that way. The scene right when they're getting on the boat at the end and Marion gives him a kiss and they share this real electric moment from for a sec. And I'm like, do it, Marion. Do it. He's better. Like, I I just wanted her to run (laughs) off with him. And uh, isn't he married, though? I don't know. See, that's the thing. The first part of this movie, the first, I don't know, 45 minutes of this movie. I was not having a good time. And I love this movie. (laughs) But until after, like until uh, that chase sequence through the streets ends and they start digging for the arc, I really was struggling with this film. And I think John Reese davies character is a victim of that because they just kind of show up in, I think it's Cairo, and they're on his roof and they're like, ah, the ancient city of Cairo. And you really <laughs> never get any explanation of who this guy is or you just know that he's kind of an old friend of Indy's, but that's all you know. I see. I think that that was the second kiss when she's like, "This one's for Farah, and this one, or the first one, and then this is for your children, and this this is for uh, you." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm pretty sure that he's married, which makes the kiss like all the more confusing. Yeah, like, I want I want him to pull a Richard Dreyfus and just abandon okay. his wife and children <laughs> and go off jump with Marion. Jump end. onto the spaceship. That's right <laughs> with Maid Marion. 
<laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, this is just jumping in my brain. John John Rhys Davies would make a phenomenal Friar Tuck if uh, if Karen Allen wanted to be made Marion. Oh yeah, there you go. This movie, Robin Hood as Harrison Ford, uh, Paul Freeman as the uh, the sheriff of Nottingham. There you go. I, I, I'm we, in. We're way off base here. Uh, <laughs> we're so far down the rabbit hole. My power rankings would be number one, John Rhys Davies. Number two would be Paul Freeman as Belloc because he's a great villain and he's just villainous enough that he he kind of does the Hans Grubery thing. But then there's also almost a redemption arc for him before mm-hmm. he descends into complete villainy. And I really loved that. I loved the fact that he probably had the most character development of anybody in the film. Easily. Yeah, I, I was going to say my power rankings would go Paul Freeman at the top. Yeah. I absolutely loved him this time. And the thing is, I I don't think I'd ever really watched this film analytically before. Which is like always a dangerous thing, right? Because with a movie that you absolutely love and cherish, it can be scary to watch it analytically. I mean, look what happened to uh, another 1980s film that is beloved, Back to the Future. Mm, we we did Not, kind of massacre that one. <laughs> it was eviscerated. <laughs> uh, so watching this analytically, I was a little nervous because, Bob, I was with you. That first 40 to 60 minutes of the movie was kind of rough. But man, oh man, I absolutely loved the character of Belloc. And the way that Paul Freeman portrayed him, because you're right, he is the only person in the whole movie that has something of a development arc. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was neat to see how they basically set him up as the villain of the movie. But by the way, he's not as bad as the Nazis. Like the Nazis are are like ready and willing to kill Karen Allen. But like Paul Freeman's not going there. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to protect her. And like also take her off to like maybe be my plaything, but but it's a good thing because I'm protecting her from being dead. Right. So, you know, he's he's kind of a good guy. <laughs> I wish that there had been some sort of tracker on the bottom of the screen that just counted the number of times the Nazis could have killed Indiana Jones and Marion, <laughs> but chose not to for some reason. Because it's, it's at it's least a, seven times. It's a drinking game. Easily. It, truly. <laughs> All right, Brad. So we've both established that Harrison Ford is probably not at the top of our power rankings. But since you originally posed the question to me, I don't know, you you evaluate him. What do you think of him in this film? I think that he shines when he is interacting with a few specific people. And I really do think it's Paul Freeman and John Rhys Davies. Oh, yeah. Like anytime he's interacting with them, it feels like he comes to life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I don't know. Uh, I guess we're kind of getting to it now. I don't know how I feel about Karen Allen. I don't mind her. I think that her character is very underdeveloped and she's she's there to kind of be in distress a lot, which tracks with the inspiration for this movie. Like those old damsel in distress movies are exactly what they're doing here. And they make her a little more tough and a little more able to pitch in and knock a guy on the head with a big wooden block kind of a thing. She shoots a guy. Yeah. Turret. Right. So there, there are those elements to it, but I actually really like her. And especially when you get to the second film and Indiana Jones has a different love interest, Kate Capshaw, uh, who becomes Mrs. Spielberg after that, uh, Ah. the Kate Capshaw character in temple of doom is just no bueno. And there's a reason that they bring Karen <laughs> Allen back in Indiana Jones 4 just to try to recapture some of that magic. 
So I, I don't know. I really liked her, but I would agree that there's not really much there for her to do. Yeah, which is disappointing because I, I think she has a lot of like vivaciousness and energy to her performance um, that it would have just been cool to see them give her more of an arc than mm-hmm. just a really feisty damsel in distress. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's talk about Spielberg's filmmaking here, because if there is something that I could nerd out about with this movie, and, and it's hard to talk about it with this movie because I feel like on the surface, this movie has nothing beneath the surface. It's just there to be popcorn and to mimic things that Spielberg liked in his childhood. But there's there's something about the way that Spielberg makes movies, and you see it a lot with his friend and contemporary Brian De Palma, who did, you know, Brad, I know that you would have seen the first Mission Impossible movie, mm-hmm. um, and The Untouchables, I think, is a really good example of this, where everything looks so fake and unreal, but the sort of like artificiality, the artifice of it is part of why he's doing it because for De Palma and I think a little bit for Spielberg, like they're trying to get to the, like the essence of what they would call cinema. Like what does it mean for something to be cinematic? And that's a conversation you and I have touched on on this podcast before. And friend of show Patrick Willems has a great video about this word cinematic that's thrown around, but there's something kind of like real heady and cerebral that Guys like De Palma and Spielberg do where they're making a movie that is real fake and cheesy and artificial and they're doing it on purpose because it allows them to demonstrate that only in the movies can you create worlds like this. It's this real weird like meta thing that's going on and I find it super interesting especially in a movie like this because it's just chock full of references but it's also made in such a way that no one else could have made this movie. Does that make sense? Like, you couldn't give this movie to a B-grade director. They could have made, you know, the exact same script and chocked full of the same amount of references, and it would come across, I don't know, like a, a lesser product. There's something elevated that Spielberg's doing here. I think that's that's the part where I, I struggle a little bit with your analogy, is that at a certain point, you can make all the references you want, but at what point is is the artifice just too much and push it into this is cheesy and bad? Yeah. Um, for me, I, I'll use a specific example of the movie. It's the character of apparently his name is Tote, the the German guy who burns his hand <laughs> on the uh, the most on, Nazi of the Nazis. The most Nazi of the Nazis. He he, yes. he looks perennially damp. Like yes. He's just a very moist looking person. A little, little bit constipated all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think that he, for me, is growing up watching this movie, I always thought that he was the bad guy of the movie and not Bullock. But having watched it again recently, like a year, year and a half ago, and then now for the for the for this episode, I realize I'm like, oh, no, like he's not he's like kind of the bad guy, but not really. And he feels like the epitome of what you're talking about, something that's so over the top and artificial that it it calls attention to itself as something that could only exist in a movie universe. Mm. Yeah, I get that. As an adult watching it, I don't know if I like that or not. This is where I think 
like a movie like uh, The Untouchables. I really hope we do that someday on the show because there is so much fakeness going on in that movie. And you notice it a lot, too, with something like uh, Tim Burton's Batman, where the 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 weird angles and the expressionistic sets are part of it. And I think sometimes it's so easy for us to be like, oh, that looks cheesy and dumb. And then you don't really factor in the idea that they want it to be cheesy and dumb. And then you get into this whole conversation of why would you want something to look cheesy and dumb? And it's, you know, it, it it's this weird cycle. But you do kind of notice it here with what Spielberg is doing. But at the same time, it's also just another example of the way Spielberg is an absolute master with the way he moves the camera. There are a number of those great Spielberg oneers in this movie, again, where he has a long take where the camera moves and instead of cutting between multiple camera setups, he just makes multiple shots out of one shot. And the most famous example is when they first go to Nepal and Karen Allen is in the middle of that drinking game against that guy. And that's all one take and it's all one shot. And they keep, you know, panning down and, or tilting the camera down and pushing in. Now, Bob, uh, hold up a second there. It, this is 2022. I will say that having watched that movie since I was a child, I have never been totally sure of the gender of the person that she is drinking against. I always thought that it was a very large woman. I always thought so, too. I did, too. And I didn't notice until this time with the subtitles on that someone is talking about that person and says, "Ah, uh, he's OK. Yeah. And I then I was like, oh, OK. Uh, I Bob, just I did just think it was, a uh, you know, a, uh, a hefty, a, a burly woman. <laughs> Bob, I literally had the exact same experience. <laughs> I was watching it today with subtitles on. I was like, oh, I mean, I like I'm not totally surprised, but I, I just always. I did, too. I, I don't, yeah. Man, look at us sharing and, an experience. And, I, you know, honestly, it would have been nice, nicely progressive in 1981 to have her going it, up against two women in a drinking contest, you know? Yeah, it it would have been. Alas, it was not. It's not quite as, like, feminist empowering, though, for her to beat another woman. That's true. She she needs to beat a man. That's true. And she did, because she's kick-ass. She, she really is kick-ass. She deserves her own movie. <laughs> she so, does. So that whole thing is done in a one They keep tilting the camera down and pushing in on the shots of whiskey or whatever they're drinking and then pulling back, tilting up, pushing in on the person who's doing the drinking. It's just a really brilliant use of the camera and super economical. And Spielberg has stuff like that all through this movie. The lighting in this movie is incredible. Uh, right when they go down into the kind of crypt where all the snakes are and the Ark is, is being stored and it's John Rhys Davies and Harrison Ford, there's this great shot from kind of like behind the arc. And the only things that are really illuminated are the giant statues of gold in the background. And you can kind of see how John Reese Davies is reacting. But Harrison Ford's in silhouette. And even with his silhouette, there's like little flashes of lightning every once in a while that illuminate his shadow onto the the box that's holding the arc. And it is like by far my favorite shot in this movie. It is such a cool shot. And there were multiple points where I was just kind of like pausing it and going, wow, like Sp Spielberg does it again. <laughs> He's at it again. <laughs> I feel like it's like a night. You're sitting there like a 1930s horse race announcer. Right. And Spielberg did it again. He's coming around the bend. <laughs> yeah, Bob, I, I'm with you in the, the fact that this movie would have been absolute poo poo in the hands of a, a lesser director. I think that Spielberg elevates this movie far above where it deserves to be. 
you know, with the plot being as thin as it is and with there being a lack of character development for any of the protagonists, I, I think that this movie shouldn't have been good, which makes it all the more impressive that Spielberg made it good. And not just good, but like truly a a legend in film history. I mean, this really feels like LeBron taking the 07 Cavs with uh, <laughs> Sasha Pavlovich to the finals. <laughs> I mean, it's true. And before we go to break, I do want to touch a little bit on this first 40 minutes. Because I had to watch this movie in two installments, which is never ideal, but I've seen it like 30 times. But I haven't watched it in years And I went to bed around that 45 minute mark right after they think that Marion has died. And I texted you today and I said, look, I know this movie's reputation. I know that it is considered to be perfectly constructed and it's full of perfectly put together small, you know, 20 minute segments. But is it actually a good movie? Because up till that point. Nothing was really landing. It was well choreographed. There were some cool fight scenes, but it felt like an extended trailer to that point. And it wasn't really until Marion and Indy get separated and Indy and John Reese davies are going to look for the Ark and Marion's kind of being held captive and they're cutting back and forth between those two storylines that I felt like the movie finally had a purpose that they were there was a race to find this arc and there were stakes and there was danger and it was really suspenseful and i don't know man from that point on the movie really took off for me but it's hard to ignore how bad that first stretch was and ironically that's the stretch where i think most of the famous stuff in the movie happens but it almost none of it worked for me well i will i'm going to ask you a question what about the opening scene like up until the point he's in the plane flying back to the U.S. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about that opening sequence? I mean, it's a cool character introduction. And again, it's iconic. Like, what do you, what am I going to say? They shouldn't have had a giant boulder roll after Harrison <laughs> Ford. Like, absolutely. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. It serves really no purpose to the film other than to just establish that he's very brave and he he knows what he's doing. Um, and and, and Balak. Yeah. And they do the cool thing that it's like the the Casablanca. Uh, you know, they don't show Rick's face for the first 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden they pan up and he's there. You know, Harrison Ford comes out of the shadows and it's like, oh, this is Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. It's a well-made sequence. But again, you don't really know anything about the character going into that. So it's like, oh, that's a cool reveal. But what does it all mean? I, I don't know. Yeah. For me, the movie struggles between him getting back to the U.S. and them, like you said, at the dig site, the the plane scene, and from there to the end. Because I think that that opening scene gives you everything you need to know about Indy as a character, which, you know, it sets up a nice little like, oh, he's actually a professor and, you know, is teaching students. And so it's it's kind of a nice, like, almost a gag that he's not just this, you know, pilfering adventurer. But the opening scene sets the tone for the entire movie. And then it kind of grinds to a halt for 40 minutes. And then they kick it into sixth gear. They They turn it up to 11, if you will. And the rest of the movie is spectacular. Yeah. So I, I think that for me, the opening scene really is important to the film, but I'm with you, man. That that little like middle section ish, if you want to call it that, was just flat out kind of rough. Yeah, agreed. 
All right, well, let's hope that this whiskey isn't kind of rough. Brad, we are going to be returning to Lafroig for the first time since, I believe, season one, maybe season two. Uh, what do you say we get into this whiskey? I'm super excited, Bob. Let's get to it. All right, Brad, today we are drinking Lafroig cask strength. Sorry, Lafroig 10-year cask strength. Now, this how is... Many, how many years uh, do you think this was aged for, Bob? I'm going to go with 10. I'm going to say a decade. Ooh, bold move, guy. Ah, thank you. This is just the cask strength version of what we had way back in season one, maybe season two. I haven't gone back and looked at exactly when the episode was that aired, but Lafroig was our first peated scotch that we did on the show. And uh, we really just kind of dove into the deep end of the pool. I don't think we really know what we were doing at that point. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But I haven't really had Lafroig since then. Like I had that bottle and I shared it with a lot of people because I was not ready for something that smoky and peaty. And I haven't dipped my toes back into the Lafroig pool since then. Brad, have you uh, dabbled in Lafroig? I have not. I don't actually buy whiskey, Bob. Yeah, we get enough sent to us that we don't usually have to <laughs> stock up on it. But I didn't no, know. It's, it's honestly. Like, go ahead. It's honestly just the case that my wife looks at our, our shelves full of whiskey and might murder me and uh, bear me on her parents farm if I bought another bottle of whiskey. So. So, yeah, I don't I don't jump into the world of uh, whiskey very often as far as purchasing goes, especially not a $90 bottle of uh, cask strength scotch. Yeah. Do you remember anything about the Lafroig 10? It was peaty. It was very peaty. <laughs> and as I pour this out, Brad, this is, I mean, this has a significant amount more color than you normally get with scotch, which is allowed to have coloring agents added and still be called scotch and not have to give any sort of uh, other designation or, or warning that they've added coloring to it. I don't believe this has color added. I think it's just the fact that it comes from, you know, straight from the barrel, essentially. The one that we're drinking today clocks in at 60.1% ABV or 120.2 proof. So this is like really alcoholic. This is not something you typically see in scotch. It is an Isla whiskey, which, I mean, we said Pete, you should be thinking Isla anyway. Brad, I've given the specs on it. Let's dive in. What do you think of the nose on this? As per the huge, there is a lot of peat on here. Mm -hmm. But once you've moved beyond the peat, and, and I will say, my best advice for anyone who is drinking a peated scotch for the first time, sit with the nose for twice as long as you would sit with a bourbon nose. Because it, it really takes some time for your nose to get used to what's happening with this smoke and uh, find some notes underneath. But for me, once I sat with it for a minute... There was some lemon pledge going on, some tobacco, and some burnt oak. Yeah, for me, it started as a kind of saline heavy, almost like a like a salted meat prosciutto or something. And then it very quickly was like, hey, you know that, that scent of your hoodie after you've been sitting next to a campfire for too long <laughs> that you get home yeah. and you're like, my God, I smell like campfire. It was that. But then I pushed through that a little bit. And this is very strongly piney to me, not like mm. juniper. I thought maybe that it would tip into that kind of gin note for a minute, but it's like straight Christmas tree pine to me. And I like it because I, I don't think I got that on the original, you know, that's the regular 10 year Lafroig. I'm excited to see where this goes, if it's going to kind of stay in that smoky meat or just really smoky, you know, camp bonfire kind of thing. 
or if I'm going to get some of those kind of woodsy, vegetal, herbal notes here. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 on the nose, Brad. Uh, I'm a little softer than you. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the nose. Um, But I will say, as I got into the actual flavor profile on my palate, it was like a little bit of sweet honey on the tip of my tongue, followed by a ton of vegetable and leather and like little bits of oak floating around there. Um, It's a really interesting palate. And and I didn't mention it, but you can just assume that there is peat and smoke on every part Mm -hmm. of this whiskey. Mm Mm-hmm. This is like the alcohol on this manifests differently than a lot of cast strength whiskeys. This is really, really prickly on my tongue to the point where you got, you know, I don't usually leave in mouth sounds when we're tasting, but I'm constantly having to stop and swallow because my mouth is watering so heavily mm-hmm. from how tingly this was. Uh, I will say, Brad, that pine note really carried through for me. It was it had a little bit of smoke, but you're right that that kind of honeyed. Uh, tip of my tongue flavor was there and then the alcohol burn took over and the predominant note for me was that pine almost to the point where it tasted like mentholated do you know? <laughs> it was like mm. it was like the the green marlboros of scotch whiskey and i actually <laughs> really like this a lot this is a note that i don't think i've ever gotten you know to this extent on an isla scotch before i'm really digging this i'm going to give it an eight and a half on the taste Yeah, I think that the palette here is really good. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I think that the finish for me is where this one lacks a lot. And it's honestly just because the vegetal notes come out on the back end so, so strong. Uh, There's a little bit of citrus going on at the end as as well, which I like. But overall, it just kind of tastes like I bit into a big bag of like California medley steamed veggies (laughs) right out of the right out of the microwaved bag that I often feed to my child. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I am not a fan of that. It's not terrible, but it's not my favorite. I'll give it a six and a half. You know, what's really funny is I, I don't taste any of that on this, but I can understand how the things that I'm interpreting as really strongly mint forward, you could be interpreting as like cauliflower or, you know, uh, what are those mm-hmm. vegetables? Cruciferous vegetables. Yes. I, yep. I really like it, though, man. This is, again, I for me, this is like once in a while I'll make a hot chocolate and instead of putting a candy cane in there because it's a little too sugary, I'll try to just add a drop or two of peppermint extract. But the peppermint extract comes out of the bottle too fast sometimes. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, like, what have I done? It's like drinking chocolate flavored Vicks VapoRub. And this kind of (laughs) reminds me of that. Like when you over mint something, I really dig it. I was not expecting to like this this much, but I'm going to give it an eight again on the finish. And when it comes to balance, I think I'm going to give it a nine out of ten. I truly did not think Lafroy cask strength was going to be among my favorites that I've had in a long time here. But this is really ranking up there in terms of the Isla scotches we've had. Yeah, I think that the balance is where this really shines. Uh, it is an, an incredible experience from nose to finish. It's not all stuff that I like, but I can tell that it's well made. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give it an eight and a half on balance, Bob. All right. And that brings us to value. Now, Brad, you did say this was a $90 bottle of whiskey, so that's putting it in league with something like a Lefroy Lore, which was, I believe, $99 at the time we reviewed it. And we loved Lefroy Lore. Brad, it should be noted that there are just not a lot of cask strength scotches out there, especially that are widely available. You know, you can typically get some 
uh, but they're really hard to find. And because scotch is so expensive to begin with, I don't mind the $90 price tag on this. If this was a bourbon and they were charging, you know, $65 to $70 for it, I would think that that was priced appropriately. And when you factor in how much more scotch typically costs, I don't mind this price point. I wish it was a little bit lower, but I'm not going to ding it too much. I think I'll give it a seven and a half on value. Yeah, I think I'll give it a six on value. Um, I mean, catch, cask strength scotch is a rarity, but $90 is still like decently expensive to the point where it's not a bad value. But for me, it's it's not my favorite value that I've ever seen. All right, Brad, I'm coming out to a 41 out of 50 on this. Where are you landing? A uh, little bit lower. I'm at a 36 out of 50, Bob. All right. That puts us at a 77 out of 100 or a 38.5 out of 50. Again, I like we're over the mark where we would typically recommend. Not only would I recommend trying this at a bar, I would absolutely recommend buying a bottle. It's, you know, it's a bit of a splurge, but it's a darn good one. I do like this whiskey a lot, Bob, but I think I'm still stuck on the Ardbeg that we were having last season as far as peated scotches go. Well, uh, Brad likes his Ardbegs, and I surprisingly like my Laphroaigs. After the lore and this one, I think I've really done a 180 on this distillery. Brad, let's take these good feelings and apply them to Raiders of the Lost Ark. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was Lafroig 10-Year Cask Strength, a whiskey that Bob and I were both pretty high on. Bob, Bob, I think that might have been the first time in a while that you were a lot higher on a whiskey than I was. Yeah, a 41 versus, what, what was yours, a 35 or 36? Six. Yeah, yeah. a big difference. It was. Uh, there's also a big difference going on in your win-loss total from last <laughs> season in Two Facts and a Falsehood. Yeah, it is time for two facts and a falsehood where Brad tries to stump me by presenting three things as facts, one of which he completely made up. And if we're being honest, all three of them might be made up. We're we're putting a lot of faith in people on the Internet <laughs> to report things accurately, which is we sh- a losing we battle. Sure are, Bob. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I'm yes. 0 and 2 on the season, and I really got to get in the win column here, man. I hope you took it easy on me today. I, I might have. I I, th- I think I was subconsciously feeling poorly for you, Bob. So uh, let's jump into them and see if you can figure it out. Fact number one, this film was originally given an R rating because of the exploding head at the end. They obviously did not want this picture to be rated R, so they added layers of fire in front of his face to make it appear less graphic. Mm, nice. Uh, but, which I will say, watching it again, I'm like, they covered that up, but the melting faces, totally fine. Right. PG. Right. <laughs> uh, fact number two, Lucas was going back and forth with Spielberg on the film, and he, L- George Lucas, originally envisioned Indy as more of like a 007 type of character, and he tried to convince Spielberg to cast none other than Sean Connery in the role of Indiana Jones. But as soon as he looked into it, he had conflicts with another movie called Time Bandits. And so they didn't even really approach him to uh, do this role. Okay. Fact number three. Harrison Ford himself uh, did not use a stunt double, actually outran the boulder in the opening sequence. But because the shot, the scene was shot twice from five different angles, he had to outrun it ten different times. Um, and the stumble that he had kind of in the in the middle of the scene was deemed to look authentic enough that they left it in. Okay. 
Um, I think one is true. I was hoping that you would just quote the very well-known uh, factoid about the guy that uh, Indy shoots that's like, you know, wielding the sword and it's because Harrison Ford had to poop real bad. And uh, they didn't they didn't want to set the whole thing up again and take 45 minutes that, you know, to get all these different camera setups and then choreograph a fight. And so Ford just said, can I shoot the guy? And Spielberg said, sure. Uh, yeah. And that's how that scene came yeah. about. I'm I'm not a rookie, Bob. I know. I know. But <laughs> I'm going to say that two is the falsehood. I mean, I know they get Connery for the third movie. I just think Connery was a little bit old at this point to be approached for Indiana Jones. So I'm going to say two is the falsehood. Yeah, Harrison Ford was 36, I want to say. But yeah, you are correct. That is not the truth. All right, man. (laughs) I finally get in the win column. You nailed it, man. Good job. Thanks for taking it easy on me this time around, man. I was wondering if if, uh, Connery was too obvious of a, uh, a choice. Here's the thing. This was kind of based on a truth that Lucas actually really did envision him as more of a 007 type. Hmm. Uh, but Spielberg had more in mind of of what, what you were talking about at the start of the episode, more of the adventurous things that they saw in the 30s, you know, shorts. I think it would have been cool to see somebody like a Steve McQueen in this role. I know Ooh, we talked about McQueen yeah. and how Spielberg had wanted him for Close Encounters. But I mean, I think this is way more in line with with a Steve McQueen performance. Yeah, he, he would instead of riding a horse, though, he would have been on a motorcycle <laughs> for sure. A hundred percent. <laughs> All right, Brad, I want to talk a little bit about the humor in this movie, because this is probably the first time that we've gotten real authentic gags in one of our Spielberg movies for this season. I thought that some of the lines in Close Encounters that Spielberg wrote were really, really good, super funny. But there were a lot of visual punchlines done in this movie that I really appreciated, especially, again, after that 45 ish minute mark when the movie really starts to pick up. Uh, the the one that really got me, and I always forget that it's coming, but it's when the the very evil Nazi guy comes into the tent and he pulls out the thing that looks like he's going to strangle Marion with it, and it turns out to be a coat hanger. And that gag, it just made me laugh out loud. It was so well done. And it's those little cheesy, almost juvenile jokes that Spielberg somehow still manages to make work that I think really help the movie feel light even though it's dealing with some pretty weird heavy subject matter yeah and even that gag is like it has it has been done to perpetuity now yeah um like i'm thinking of a family guy scene where they they do it for like 12 straight different things that he pulls out of his coat (laughs) (laughs) and it keeps turning into just like mundane meaningless objects uh it's just a brilliant gag yeah i think that the comedy in this movie really helps it runs smoothly uh it it reminds you continuously that this isn't a deep movie it's not something you need to really think much about it's just something to have fun to entertain you know we we talk about movies kind of falling into one of two categories is this movie here to entertain or to make you think and this there's no problem with a movie being in one or the other categories you know I, i think it's really cool when a movie can make you do both but this movie is here to entertain you, and the reason it has lasted, you know, as long as it has as a fan favorite is simply the fact that it's one of the most entertaining movies ever. Yeah, and 
to the point where you just don't care anymore about some of the logic of the movie. Uh, like, I really want to believe <laughs> that Indiana Jones never found a way into the Nazi submarine. Like, he just he just <laughs> held on for, for a thousand miles yep. while they went underwater. And I think what the movie's trying to imply is that the sub never actually went underwater. But they do this weird thing where they cut inside and all of the Nazis are, like, frantically turning the, you know, the steering wheels and stuff, making it look like they're about to plunge. So I don't know well, if we're supposed to. they have the alarm to, going off. Yeah, and... like, I don't know if we're supposed <laughs> to, like, interpret it as he found a way to actively sneak into a submarine, which are, of course, you know, <laughs> notoriously cavernous and full of places to hide. Uh, yeah. Or that he just kind of hung on to the side and hitched a ride the whole way there. Here's the thing. When they cut to the inside, they have a guy wearing this like big, thick, almost like a bomber jacket. And it looks like Harrison Ford. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Dude, go back to that scene because it literally looks like he snuck onto the submarine. You know, he knocked out some officer, took his jacket and snuck onto the submarine. But then they cut back to the uh, the the captain of the ship that they were on, and they're you know where we can't find Jones. Where is he? And then they see him climbing the side of it, and you're like, oh, oh, he didn't actually climb it or you know sneak on as a as a Nazi officer. I mean, he does have a knack for stealing people's clothes, though. He he's really good at it, man. Which was another. I really appreciated the way they did that gag because. It's been done to death for, uh, you know, a millennia now of like <laughs> guy knocks out other guy and steals his clothes. And, it, you know, it's the first time that I can remember, at least, that he knocks out a guy, steals his clothes and then they're too small. So they have to, he yeah. has to knock out a second guy. <laughs> like, it's just a nice little touch. Yeah, I I think that they do so many of those little things well that, like I said, at the first half of this episode, it really raises this movie beyond where I think it probably deserved to be. Can I tell you one thing that is unfairly hard to fight against when it comes to evaluating this movie? It's that I realized that there is a movie that came out very recently that, I mean, just straight copies most of the plot points and beats from this film. But it's a horrible movie. And it's a movie called The Rise of Skywalker. And I didn't realize it until about halfway through. And I was like, why does this seem so familiar? And I was like, oh, it's because I just watched that horrible movie, Rise of Skywalker. But when you really start to think about the things that they do in that movie that everyone railed against. And I remember the thing that a lot of people, it just got caught, you know, kind of caught in our craw was the scene where Chewbacca gets kidnapped by the stormtroopers and put on this giant ship. That it make it makes it look like Daisy Ridley's character blows up with her mm-hmm. force powers, and they're oh my god, Chewie's dead. And then in the next scene, you find out no, Chewie just somehow switched to the next ship, and everybody was like, ah, f this movie. Why would any movie ever do this? I I refuse. <laughs> and then you go back, and it's one of the most beloved films of all time, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there is absolutely no explanation for how the hell. Marion got out of that situation. Indy just says like, oh, you must have switched baskets. And she doesn't even confirm it. She just kind of gives him a hug. Like, sure, I did, buddy. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, they did the thing that Rise of Skywalker did. And I started thinking about it. And there are so many plot points that are right, like generally Rise of Skywalker-y. The whole concept of everything is, oh, what's that called? Uh, Like like in a video game, a fetch quest. 
everything yes. in this is like you have to go get the thing. And when you get the thing, you put it on this other thing. And then when you stand in this exact spot, like it's a whole point in this movie. You have to stand at this exact spot in this exact place and hold the thing in a specific angle. And that's exactly the thing that we hated about Rise of Skywalker was like she held this stupid dagger in this exact spot and it pointed out the thing. But that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And what happens at the end of the movie? Who is the big bad that we are fighting? It's a weird villainous man with a melted face like it <laughs> and and how do you defeat him you defeat him with your supernatural powers like it's the same freaking movie and yet i like this movie and i hate the rise of skywalker and it's really hard to reconcile or you know what i mean like to not punish this movie for the things that i very much punish rise of skywalker for i bob i think that that would be probably a worthy bonus episode topic no, I'm like, giving it like, to the people for free. We need to reckon with this <laughs> as a society. Like, are we too hard on Rise of Skywalker or do we need to be more harsh on Raiders of the Lost Ark? No, I, I don't think either of those things are true. <laughs> I think I think that Rise of S- Skywalker is just a garbage movie. Oh, for sure. And I, I think I think it's because of expectations Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I I don't think they had it planned as a trilogy at that point, but it is set up to be a standalone movie that is simply about the adventures of Indiana Jones. Like, like that's it. It's just supposed to be a fun popcorn munching, you know, pleasing movie. Whereas when you get into the story and the lore of Star Wars, like, I'm sorry, but you just can't separate everything that has happened over the past 50 years from, you know, what Disney was trying to do with that trilogy and trying to wrap up the story of Luke Skywalker that that was started so long ago requires a hell of a lot more than what they were trying to do in Indiana Jones and the and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You know, and so to apply that format to the the grand finale of one of the single most famous intellectual properties of all time is a recipe for disaster i just love that they were like we don't we don't want you to do what ryan johnson did don't get too creative (laughs) and colin trevorrow was like i'm on it and then he looked around he was like "Ah, i got nothing he was looking at a blank page and then he just said you know what i'm gonna do I'm just going to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm just going <laughs> to cross out Spielberg's name and change some character names, and I've got my movie. I just feel like he was probably like sitting down one night just at his wit's end and started watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and halfway through was like, he gets. I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> All right, man. Let's give this movie some scores. I was wholeheartedly expecting to come into this episode and have to be like the snooty sounding hot take guy that says Raiders is not that good actually and give it like a seven and a half. And then immediately the movie got better and Spielberg was like, don't worry, you're in good hands. I can't give it a perfect score and I can't even give it a nine and a half because that first 40 minutes are really bad. But it's similar to what we'd said with Raiders uh, with Return of the Jedi. Like it just has a really bad opening segment and then it gets super good after that. And you just kind of have to roll with it. Brad, I'm going to give this movie a nine out of ten. I I can't believe I'm going to say this. I think I'm a tiny bit lower than you. I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of ten. I think that this movie is truly great at what it wants to be great at. 
but there's just so many parts of the movie, the the transitions and some of the dialogue especially, that just feel really clunky and unspielbergy. Mm. That I feel like I'm I'm like punishing the movie a little bit because I watched it analytically this time. But coming out to an eight and a half still, I like I really like this movie a lot. I just don't want to ask it to be more than what it's trying to be. All right. So we are coming out to an average of an 8.75 out of 10. But we'd like to know what you think. Obviously, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right. Now, let let us know what you think of it. Do you agree with me? Do you agree with Brad? Are you higher or lower than either of us? You can let us know on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto the conversation in our Discord. We are on there every single day interacting with the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. All right. Next week, we're finally getting around to it, Brad. Maybe my favorite movie, no pressure. We're watching 1993's Jurassic Park. I cannot wait. It's going to be epic. Join us for that next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.